you know, like the pers- the prescriptive nature of someone offering you a route back to your back to like a kind of idea of health um, can feel very oppressive and feel very um, can. N- I think induce a lot of shame um, in the face of this kind of wellness industrial complex. And, and yet, you know, I don't, I I wouldn't say that I have any answers um, about (laughs) much of anything other than to say that like, I'm willing to, to reside in, in that place of, of sort of discomfort or acknowledging my discomfort or acknowledging days that are going pretty well or um moments of ease um and trying to figure out what leads to those moments within myself and for the people I work with Welcome to Bedside Manor. This is a podcast about the human side of helping people. I am your host. My name is Juliana Hazelwood. I am a Katona yoga teacher, a student of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, and I'm back. I famously took a dramatic medical leave, um, but I'm I'm back at it. I think for the time being, this will be a bi-weekly kind of situation on the pod, um, just while I get my feet back on the on the ground because I've been quite horizontal lately, but not in a fun way, just so you know. Anyway, great show for you today. The star of today's show is Asher Pinjeras. Asher is a psychotherapist and the host of one of my favorite podcasts called Living in This Queer Body, and someone that I consider to be an instrumental part of my recovery from anorexia because I met Asher a few years ago right at the beginning of my outpatient treatment and I didn't go see Asher for one-on-one therapy. I went to see Asher for couples therapy because I was at the really the bottom, the dark days of my eating disorder and uh, in a pretty bad relationship situation and that funny thing happens where you go to couples therapy and you think that the therapist is going to help you stay together and fix all your relationship problems and instead you break up (laughs) which of course ended up being one of the best things that could have ever happened to me and what I didn't know at the time was that leaving that relationship with that person was a a process that ran completely parallel to leaving the relationship that I had with my eating disorder. And I don't think I would have been able to entertain the idea of leaving either if it had not been Asher specifically guiding me through that process. And it wasn't so much that we had like these incredible breakthrough sessions every single time. It was more so that I, I saw this person in front of me and I was like, they are this like incredibly present, honest, cool, queer person. (laughs) 
And that seems way more my vibe than being this sort of skittish, cold, paranoid, obsessive, anorexic person. Do you know what I mean? And that, that's not a value judgment on, on anyone who has anorexia. It's just like my, I realized that my experience of self and the sort of self I was striving for in the relationship, in the eating disorder, it was just very incongruent. And Asher, as a person and a role model in many ways, offered me um, an alternative way of, of kind of closing that gap between what I knew to be true on the inside, at the core of who I was, and am still, same person. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the sort of physical aspects of my life and my body and things like that. So you might be wondering, how the hell did they do this? This is like a superpower. And I would agree, it is a superpower. Um, Asher is a very talented, very intelligent, very important voice, certainly in the eating disorder treatment community, but also obviously much further beyond that. So I want to tell you more about what happened to me as Asher's patient during that time that we were working together, um, just so that you can get a little, uh, so, so that we can set the stage properly. Do you know what I mean? So that by the time the spotlight shines on Asher and we welcome them to the stage, you know exactly what kind of star we are working with. Okay? Okay, so cut to me and Asher's office in couples therapy. And okay, mind you, it did take me several months to get the cojones to leave that relationship and move the needle in my recovery, but it did happen. And in those few months, with Asher's help, what really got things sort of clicked in the right place was that I finally started to see that my eating disorder was keeping me completely hostage in a ridiculously binary, obviously very destructive behavior pattern. And to keep up with that behavior, it means that my belief system had to support that because, well, maybe everyone is like this, but I'm definitely someone who 100% has to believe in what they're doing. And so to sort of cling to the architecture of the eating disorder, which is so rigid and so regimented, so black and white, so binary, I had to do all this kind of mental gymnastics to bend my beliefs around the, the structure of this disordered behavior. And the real aha moment came when I realized that this eating disorder value system was completely at odds with my actual value system, which is and was and always has been one that completely embraces multiplicity, that transcends dichotomous binaries and all of the expectations that go along with them, especially as they relate to gender, expression, identity, authenticity, bodies, you know? So I was latching on to this ideology, the ideology of my eating disorder, and in so doing, I was literally allowing my body to embody a, a belief system that I don't believe in. 
that I have no interest in participating in or perpetuating. So that was huge. (laughs) Pause. That was huge. And the reason that Asher is uh, such a central figure in this discovery is because, as you will soon learn, um, Asher is not only a, a very talented psychotherapist, but also a, a queer icon in their own right. And what this discovery really did, the sort of turning of the key, uh, what that did was it opened the door to realizing that queering uh, re- my recovery, queering my sense of self and n- knowledge of self, expression of self, uh, was where I would find meaningful, substantial recovery. Because what was on the other side of that realization was this feeling of like, ugh, this isn't me. I don't, I don't believe this shit. I'm not like a, a, an agent of the like white evil patriarchy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is funny because I had spent a whole lifetime feeling like, ugh, this isn't me. This body isn't me. Because I had dysmorphia and dysphoria, you know? And so the irony here is that the eating disorder at one point in my life felt like the only way that I could fit into the world more. And looking at it from a different angle and sort of queering my perspective of the whole thing, realized that it wasn't a matter of fitting into the world more, it was fitting into myself more, and that the eating disorder wasn't a means to an end, it was a side effect of not feeling like I fit myself. And I really struggled to have this conversation with most people who treat eating disorders uh, or talk about eating disorders or body image because I think the sort of mainstream approach with anything body eating related is like this assumption that everyone wants to be to look like an influencer and I have never wanted to look like an influencer and my desire to maintain a sort of wayfish prepubescent body really is at its core a way of managing not just dysmorphia but some dysphoria as well and no one is talking about that i mean plenty of people are but the the loudest voices and the people that i had available to me up until the point where i was in asher's treatment room or office um that that was not on my radar even remotely And so what this sort of queering my recovery process did for me was it opened up another conversation for me to have with my team and myself about why I didn't feel right in my body and why uh, refeeding was so, and gaining weight back was so scary because it just didn't feel right to have this sort of curvy, traditionally ultra-femme body type because I, I just, even though I've always been quite femme and I comfortably identify as a woman, I've just never felt like that kind of woman. And I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. And I don't know, it just it felt a lot more in line with my idea of self and 
to an extent, a sort of damaging, idealized version of self, to have a sort of delicately femme constitution in a sort of tomboyish shape. Um, I know people always get in trouble when they're like, I'm a blah, blah, blah in the body of a blah, blah, blah. But basically, I've always felt like I had kind of like a chic, middle-aged, rich lady in like a teenage twinks body. (laughs) Oops. Um, So anyway, fortunately, I have learned how to express myself and my identity in a more joyful and creative and uh, constructive way that doesn't involve harming myself, starving myself, diminishing myself. Um, It's still a process. It still gets hairy every once in a while. And, um, you know, healing is not linear, but I do not think that any of this progress and this feeling like myselfness would have been possible if I didn't have the frameworks and architecture of queer theory, queer culture, and these queer communities that really do embody an alternative to you know, evil patriarchy and stuff. So ultimately, the most therapeutic thing for me has been what is celebrated in these queer spaces and by queer people. And that is the idea that whoever you are and whatever you want to express about yourself in whatever manner, uh, that is valuable and dynamic and constantly in flux. And the good news is that there is actually joyful room for all of it. And I like feeling that way. (laughs) And that is really, really not the vibe at a lot of these eating disorder treatment centers and in a lot of the outdated rhetoric that surrounds eating disorders and body image stuff, which, you know, tends to paint these illnesses as rich married white girl diseases and the reality is there's so much more complex than that and to gloss over that complexity is doing a lot of people a lot of harm and I think the only way to really um, help people (laughs) on a wide scale recover from these gnarly nasty really stubborn diseases is to embrace that complexity and queer the paradigm and stop treating people uh, like you can put them in boxes or fancy diets and meal plans, etc., etc. So this is why I am so completely thrilled that Asher Pinjaris is with us and also that they even exist and are doing fucking God's work over here to make these conversations about eating disorders and embodiment a little less simplistic. So, with great pleasure, it is truly an honor to welcome to the stage the star, absolute star of today's show, Asher Pinjaris. Enjoy. I'm Asher Panduris. I am a psychotherapist. I'm a podcaster. 
of the past two years. Um, and I do, I also run and facilitate um, virtual groups on a variety of topics. Um, I'm a parent. Uh, what else uh, do I do? I'm a dog parent too. I'm a human parent and I'm a dog parent. Um, yeah, that kind of sums it up. I'm an avid reader. I think that's it. That's a lot. <laughs> Let's start with psychotherapist. Tell me about how, why did you decide to be a therapist? It's a good, it's a good question that actually I think um, doesn't have a very linear um, path, which is pretty emblematic of my um, life in general. <laughs> um, and certainly my professional life, but my life in general. Um, I I went to graduate school for went to graduate school in visual and critical studies. So I was studying art, making video art, and you know, reading a lot of theory and um, art theory, and a lot of it was film theory. And it happened to be my introduction to um, the world of psychoanalytic um, thinking. And um, I was really compelled by reading about and thinking about the unconscious. And it was really the first time that um, kind of those ideas and thinking about them, thinking about the unconscious in the context of film um, and art is one thing and it's very compelling, but I think mostly it was really personally resonant and, and, you know, I think, I think I'd been in therapy before a bit, but I really hadn't at that point in my life had the experience of being, um, in any kind of generative therapeutic relationship where we were really engaging with kind of the depth of the unconscious. And, um, and so I became really interested in, and I'd always been interested in, in narrative and people's stories. And um, that's a lot of what my video art was kind of depicting. I would say it was like sort of alternative documentary kind of style. Um, and so, I think that I had a decision point. I talk about this a lot with my patients because I have a, you know, a lot of patients that I work with who are kind of young adults or emerging adults. And, um, you know, they are very concerned with, uh, having a path and, and feeling like the, the narrative of having a path is, um, linear and, and, um, so I, I talk about like, you know, these kind of decision points where um, I decided that I didn't feel compelled to continue along the path of kind of becoming an academic and going into academia, even though I was very interested in um, reading and writing and teaching. Um, and so I didn't pursue a PhD. And instead, I... Um, I decided to pursue psychotherapy and get my degree in social work and clinical social work. And part of the reason for that was because I, I kind of, it all kind of clicked together in my mind. Like I could actually, instead of, you know, I could actually talk to humans about their lived experience and 
do some of the like bearing witness to their life experiences and help um, them, them and myself make sense of my, of our collective experiences together um, in a different format, not, not only through video or writing, but also through um, a relationship. And so I think it was partly that, um, and it was partly driven by a, like a, a deep interest in continuing to study um, and engage with psychoanalytic texts, um, but in an embodied way, in a way where I was like, not just reading, but I was, you know, interacting with humans. And um, yeah, so I think that's, that's a lot of it. Also, I had a child at the time and I needed a career. Um, like I needed a kind of a more of a concrete career. And so social work, um, I'm, I feel like every structure that I end up entering into, I'm always the like outlier, you know, I'm like, I am a social worker, but I'm like a podcaster and do it in a strange way and have a interesting and like non-traditional practice. And so that ends up that felt possible within the context of studying social work. Um, but yeah, so that's what I, that's what I decided. And I've been doing that for the past, you know, 10 years or so. I never, I didn't know that you had a background in film, which I love selfishly because I went to film school as well. And all my movies were about the human body and how I liked watching bodies move and bodies interact with each other. And the shape of bodies and just just bodies <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that sort of outside in I think that happens a lot more often I think than we realize with people in this field yeah There's something on the outside that kind of hooks us and then we need to get to the what you're describing as the embodied like ex exploration of that yeah yeah I agree. And I couldn't have predicted that for myself. You know, I mean, I don't think that I could have understood that um, until I sort of hit a wall, I guess, with, with some of my interests or some of the avenues that I was pursuing. Um, yeah, I've had many, many hit a wall moments. Um, and I think that does help me uh, hold space for people that I work with, um, as, you know, as patients or in the groups that I facilitate, because a lot of people come to therapy because they've hit a wall or something is like no longer working. It's, you know, structurally, it's not sustainable or, um, and so I feel very, I, I guess I have developed through my own personal experience and also just through working that I've developed a kind of sense of ease and comfort in, in like diving into that place with other folks, you know, and sort of staying there with them, even though they don't really want to stay there themselves, you know, yeah. like I can see that it's a generative space, but um, it's also an uncomfortable space. Yeah, for sure. Who are in broad strokes, who are the kinds of people that you're working with? You mentioned young people in distress <laughs> young people in distress I mean um I think that was a lot of who I was working with for a while I I so I I kind of happened upon specializing in working with eating disorders with people who are struggling with um disordered eating um and so a lot of the people that 
uh, end up getting treatments um, for eating disorders, which is a whole kind of field of um, dysfunction, um, the treatment world. But I, you know, I tended to be someone that you know, queer, trans, non-binary, um, kind of like non-traditional um, people who are living with disordered eating and maybe don't identify as having an eating disorder, but kind of engage in some of that behavior, they tended to find me. Um, and again, kind of find me as like a... Um, an alternative to some of the more um, dogmatic and white, cis, um, straight, uh, often, you know, people honestly who 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 really have a, a pretty problematic relationship themselves with um, food and nourishment and weight stigma and fat phobia. Um, those are a lot of the people who are actually in the eating disorder field. So, you know, I'm not immune to those kind of forces, but I definitely, um, I think get sought out as someone who proposes a different path for healing or facing some of those, um, those issues. And so, I guess I do still, I definitely still work with um, people who struggle with disordered eating. I think that my practice has sort of evolved into um, working with people who have have struggled or or continue to struggle with disordered eating, but also people who don't identify as, as necessarily having an eating disorder, but struggle with what I call, what I have been calling barriers to nourishment. So, you know, I think the actual food relationship is one thing, but also, you know, I'm sure you and your, in some of what you're studying and your practice, like that it's, it's not just about how we relate to food. It's how we relate to being nourished or cared for or offering ourselves rest or, honoring our preferences, kind of expanding the language of um, the discourse around what an eating disorder is. So, and also I think that I end up working with people who are very, um, who really need someone who understands the, the nuance of kind of having or experience dysphoria gender dysphoria, um, and the way in which disordered eating kind of, um, or orthorexia and like overexercise can kind of, um, help with that in a way, but also, um, you know, ends up not being a sustainable way of managing it. So that's, that's some of who I work with. Um, and overall, I think that because of my my background in working with disordered eating, I I and and also as someone who personally lives with um, chronic health issues, I've written about and thought a lot about and worked with a lot of patients around more broadly, I guess, the notion of trauma and embodiment and how body how trauma manifests in the body, right? And so that's a really broad 
kind of framework, but that ends up being the framework of a lot of the work I do. So some people struggle with, you know, or live with chronic health issues. Some people um, live with, uh, you know, complex PTSD. Um, Often I'm dealing with both the like structural forces that, um, that make it really difficult for people to live with ease in their bodies, but I'm also dealing with um, intergenerational trauma um, and the body. And that's, you know, that can kind of affect lots of different kinds of people. So I work with a lot of different, different folks. Yeah. That phrase, uh, what, what, what did you say? Uh, having trouble being at ease in their bodies? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I see that. I feel that. I observe it. I hear it. It's like that. That to me is 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 everywhere. And there are so many reasons that people could have trouble being at ease in their bodies. Right. Um, I'm wondering if one of my paranoias as a practitioner and as a student is: Am I accidentally fucking up someone mm. because I'm not a therapist or I'm not a medical doctor or I'm not a this or not a that? And mm. I, I often think back to my time in treatment being in those really rigid um treatment paradigms they were so linear and so sort of accidentally damaging me Mm. and I'm wondering from your perspective because you work with so many people who are trying to subvert that (laughs) what are some things that that people in caregiving roles can can do or, or look out for when they start to notice that disease being in the body. Um, but, you know, we only have so many tools available to us as practitioners to sort of help people get away from those accidentally really damaging mm-hmm. ways of being. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, the first word that came to mind was curiosity, like curiosity and a, and a, a sort of willingness within one, like within myself as, so a lot of the work, I guess, um, like when I do, for example, I'll do like supervision for other clinicians who are working with, um, you know, I have a really complicated case where I'm working with a person who just like won't or can't, doesn't seem to be able to let go of these certain behaviors that are really harmful. We have a great relationship. What do we do? You know, like, so when I'm in that kind of a role, I think a lot of times what ends up maybe unlocking something is investigating what's happening within the provider, you know, within myself, for instance, right? And so in order to work with people who struggle with disordered eating, I really have to be aware of um, where I am with my own body and mostly like the kind of messiness of my own relationship to um, gender, body ease and disease, um, my own chronic illness, um, my own internalized ableism, like some of those, those, um, those frameworks that limit me and, and cause me tension in my own body. I think that like the more you become aware of that within yourself, you can sense that in other people. Um, you can really pick up on that in with, in your patients and you can see the ways that some of these like 
you know, dogmatic or prescriptive frameworks are, you can, you can almost like witness somebody struggling out of it or against it um, because it's not working for them or because it doesn't resonate for them. Um, and I think um, it's hard in like a, a kind of a treatment context in a group treatment context, but I, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's impossible to be attuned to the moments where you maybe notice that like there's no traction happening. Like someone is not um, feeling better, you know, whatever that means. I don't mean that in a linear health sort of way, but just that they're not, you know, feeling safe or feeling. um, Yeah. But I, I don't know, I guess I don't often think, and it doesn't mean, I guess I don't mean this in a way to say like, I never think about fucking up my patients. Like I don't, I certainly feel a tremendous amount of responsibility, but I guess what I'm getting at is there's some, a bit of um, a like psychic joining in the, in the process that is like being co-created between two or me and a group or me and other people, right? Like being willing to kind of put myself into the relationship, you know, the relational encounter. And um, I'm, you know, like ever always a student of relational psychoanalysis, which essentially um, is a a lot, like a lot of theory about, um, theoretical thinking about and writing about practicing psychotherapy from a perspective where like really, um, what is happening within the clinician, um, and what is happening within the patient kind of creates this like third space and this, the ability to look at that third space, the space between the two of us, I think is something that helps me a lot. Um, get out of those like rigid, you know, is this working or is it not working? Are we like, am I healing or am I not healing? Is this person, you know, like, yeah, is this, are they being compliant or are they not being compliant? Or is it, you know, like is protocol, right. Or is it not right? It's, there's something about like, um, a flexibility of thinking around that, that I try to lean into, especially when I feel like things are getting kind of polarized um, when I'm working with patients or in a group. I love it's a truly queer uh, paradigm that you are applying. Queering the, queering, exactly. Troubling the waters of that. Yes. I, I love that so much. I, the way I always think of that is, um, or exploring the, that third that third thing is, um, you know, when two things collide, there can be a lot of resistance there. And the way to end the resistance is just join the war. And then you're on the same side fighting the same fight. But I don't see a lot of that happening in uh, healthcare. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. No, I don't. It, it, I, I No, it's not. I think, I, I mean, I don't exactly... I'd be curious to hear what you think about it. I think that part of it is just that it is really confronting for a, a practitioner, a clinician, mm-hmm. uh, someone, a self-identified healer, you know, if that's how you identify, like to really um, feel implicated in a, in a process with another person or a group of people. Um, it can be very confronting. Um, 
And so I think that's part of it, that it's, it feels safer to kind of be an expert or be a guide or, um, you know, there's a evacuating of our own vulnerability that I certainly, you know, I, I certainly leaned on, especially early on in my career. Um, and I, and I don't think I was necessarily harming anyone. I just don't think it was, I was, um, yeah, I think it was preventing me from being, um, I was missing things. I was missing a lot um, and missing a lot of opportunities for attunement or connection um, too, you know, because I was uh, unwilling to see certain parts of my own self, you know, my own vulnerability. It wasn't until, you know, like, I I don't know how many years ago, but it it wasn't that long ago that I really started speaking or talking more publicly about living with like what it actually means to live with chronic health issues. And that, you know, for some people is a very relatively easy process. For me, it, it kind of like felt like there are a lot of emotional landmines in that process of being more transparent about that. But I think that the end result has been that I, I feel like I'm bringing more of myself, more parts of myself to a lot of the relationships that I'm cultivating. I mean, it's essentially what started, compelled me to start the Living This Queer Body podcast project was was kind of a desire to have more public and open conversations about the messiness of queer embodiment. And I was in that mess too. I was kind of positioning myself in that mess, um, as well, um, which felt vulnerable, but also felt, um, like, as you said, kind of a, a opening or a, like easing of tensions rather than, um, yeah, trying to kind of contain a part of my experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we talk about the, the messiness? Yeah, sure just because embodiment seems to be such a thread here. Was it hard for you to be embodied? Yes, definitely. And I think that- Has it been hard for you to- You know, I grew up in a very, um, I grew up Catholic. I grew up in a very um, sort of restrictive, binaristic um, environment. And I was- I just never fit in, you know, I mean, and so my entire experience of my kind of gender and sexuality was really, um, has been something that has been unfolding as I would like to say, I guess, for, for most of my adult life, but it was very, um, constricted, um, for most of my life. And, and so that, so yeah, it it has been hard to, to be embodied. And then, I, you know, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was 14. And I think that living in a chronically ill body that is unpredictable and has, you know, has like an auto, has autoimmune um, processes that are like kind of bewildering and um, where there isn't a lot of like physical ease in the body um, at times, you know, is, is something to work with, but is, is a very real experience. So when, sometimes when people ask me like, 
you know, I do, I do this kind of like, well, my podcast is about barriers to embodiment and how we can, you know, like, um, sort of address some of those barriers. I think what's on the other side of some of those barriers is not necessarily like gleeful ease, right? All the time. <laughs> For me, it's like embodiment. It's, and I, and that's what my idea was. I was like, oh, people who are like, you know, who know and get their gender presentation, they totally know how they identify, you know, and they're out to everyone and they're like really feeling themselves. Like this is how they feel, you know, and I'm sure there's some people that do feel that way, like that there's ease in their bodies at all times. But I think the people I end up speaking the most to are the people that um that actually are just going back to the messiness are, are actually fending off the discomfort of their that exists or resides in their bodies because of intergenerational trauma because of structural oppression because of all sorts of things and and so giving permission for that to to just be is is a kind of form of ease um that I guess we could call embodiment I I guess that's what I call embodiment but it's not always pleasant um and I've had to learn that I guess that strikes me because um to me you know there's so in a sort of like standard binary uh this is what health is kind of uh, modality or frame of thinking it's like there's a very clear image of what being healthy and embodied is. like we know that totally. we don't have to go over that but what you're describing your sort of fantasy of like the, the the polar opposite of that is kind of just as unattainable and the sort of meeting in the middle <laughs> is the like oh shit this is just the body I have mm-hmm. I don't know that that middle space really seems to be where the most productive conversations can actually be had because they're more possible conversations. Like the, the polar ends are just, those are impossibilities. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I I mean, it kind of goes back to like how we talked about, we could think about it in terms of like more prescriptive, you know, treatment for eating disorders or a lot of the like, you know, dietary protocols that have been, you know, that I've been encouraged to engage in. I, I'm certainly not going to say anything about any one of those in specifically, some of them are helpful and some of them are not, but, you know, like the, the prescriptive nature of someone offering you a route back to your, back to like a kind of idea of health, um, can feel very oppressive and feel very, um, can, I think induce a lot of shame um, in the face of this kind of wellness industrial complex. And, and yet, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I have any answers um, about <laughs> much of anything other than to say that like, I'm willing to, I think I'm more willing over the years, I've become more willing to reside in, in that place of, of sort of, discomfort or acknowledging my discomfort or acknowledging days that are going pretty well or um moments of ease um and trying to figure out what leads to those those moments within myself and for the people I work with 
the answers thing kills me because we all want to give an answer to someone who's in pain. Yes. Like, of course we do. But I think, oh my gosh, that's like people come to us for of that. Course. They come to, you know, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I do the same thing. I absolutely do the same thing. Yeah. I get ner- kind of antsy there, especially in the ED territory, be- partly because it's so close to me. But, you know, when I see practitioners giving like really specific diet advice to manage like an autoimmune thing, when there's no data to back it up, that that is even a good idea. Stuff like that kind of makes me get a little squirmy. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering when you see, when you have patients who are kind of getting different ideas from different people who are, you know, pretty well invested in, in the patient's mm-hmm. success, but might be steering them down a road that is mm. not sustainable. What do you do? Do you, do you zip it or do you give your two cents? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, Hmm. I'd have to think about what the, I'm, I'm, there's some, something that's coming to mind is like, there are absolutely, there must be, and certainly are moments where I do not refrain from saying something or directing someone I care about away from kind of like potentially damaging discourses. I mean, I think for the most part that happens in the realm of, um, with, especially with patients with disordered eating where I am made and they are made aware very quickly that they're working with practitioners, whether it be a dietitian, you know, like a yoga teacher, whatever. I mean, who the, the, the whole team, psychiatrist, uh, medical doctor, when I, when it becomes apparent that there is like a tremendous amount of fat phobia, um, or just an utter unwillingness to accept or explore the kind of perspective of health at every size, I do, uh, that is an intervention point for me. Like I really, um, over the years have, have seen the damage and witnessed and experienced with my patients. Um, and this is speaking as someone who has relatively thin privilege, but I, I've seen the ways that that, um, just causes unbearable damage to people. So that's one, that'd be like one intervention point that I can think of, but it is a good question to kind of think about like, how, you know, do we intervene or do we allow, kind of allow people to find their own path, you know? And, um, I don't know, I I guess I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think there, sometimes I'm, I'm more open to that and probably it has something to do with, um, you know, again, going back to myself, like triggers or things that within me that make me, you know, kind of maybe more protective of someone or more averse to a a certain perspective. Um, I don't know. Where, is there something specific you were thinking about when you're, when you're asking that? Nothing specific other than just, I hear it all the time. Like a dilemma for you. Yeah. Like in clinic, you know, how many times am I hearing people say, 
I'm here, I'm here to get, I'm getting acupuncture because I want to lose weight. And then the, yeah. the clinician I'm observing is saying, great, we'll work on that. And I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> no one's right. going to say anything or, you know, they're having some kind of digestive thing and the answer is to eliminate everything, every possible food that Pretty it much. could eat. Yeah. And it's really hard for me not to say something in those moments. On the other hand, I don't know that that person is at risk of developing an eating disorder. So there's right. there's a part of me that's like, do I, is that even my, a good idea? I know. I mean, I share that dilemma with you. I think specifically in the realm of like someone who has some fragility around their, um, like around confidence in around nourishment. Like it, it's, it's, taken me a lot of years to have the experience of feeling confident enough within myself to say, to not be seduced by certain, you know, like quick fix diet protocols for autoimmune disease, or, you know, like kind of to buy in myself to this idea of like a solution, you know? And so I, I would say, yes, when people come to me with like a conceit around, you know, Asher, I need you to help me to, you know, make this problem go away. <laughs> Thankfully, as a therapist, I'm able to say, well, you know, that's, I'm not a behavioral interventionist. I'm not, you know, I'm a like psychodynamically trained, like trauma therapist. So what we, what we'll end up doing is probably making things feel a lot messier mm -hmm. and then maybe better ultimately, but we're, we're really going to like agitate things before they, you know, feel more easeful. Um, because I, I, I'm really in the business of, um, trying to figure out what has been, has go gone unspoken or unsaid, um, rather than to put a bandaid on something that, um, that will just reemerge. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's making me think like a good, I'm, I'm putting myself in an imaginary room right now with the patient and thinking like, okay, if, if the person wants to lose weight, it's not my fight to convince them that they, they shouldn't want to want what they want. That's great. Like I, that's a losing battle but rather explain exactly what you're saying. This is what I can do. I can help you get, I can help you strengthen your spleen. I can help you uh, help your parasympathetic nervous system kick in a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And whatever happens to your body afterward, I'm gonna help you handle that, but I'm not gonna, I don't know if it's gonna make you lose weight or gain weight. Mm -hmm. We'll just see what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens together and, and, I think that's, that's part of it is staying with somebody, a lot of people who come to me and probably who come to you, you know, haven't, haven't had, um, the most optimal early childhood experiences of having someone stick with them in the process of like extreme distress or, you know, and so I think if anything, the the idea of sort of sticking with someone through the, like, through a quote unquote healing process through the ups and downs and disappointments and, you know, moments of optimism, um, you know, is, it can be very powerful. I mean, that, that's like the relationship is the, is really the, 
the balm to the 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 pain um yeah yeah and it's such a a beautiful model of like okay this other person is teaching the, the patient how to stick with themselves through moments of distress instead of trying to escape or Yes. numb those those experiences out of their consciousness Ex- that's exactly right and I I know exactly what it feels like to want to like you know go to my acupuncturist and be like make this stop like make this yeah. go away or make <laughs> you know go to my therapist and be like just like erase this from me mm-hmm. you know like get it out and so I have a lot of empathy for that too. Like when things, you know, are feeling unbearable and wanting a fix, but yeah, to learning to stay with yourself, um, has to be modeled. And, and sometimes we need help. Like sometimes we need someone to accompany us while we're trying, while we're learning how to do that. Mm-hmm. And what I find on the other side of those interactions is that that's where like, that's where the gold is. Like that's where the unanswerable question always lies. It's like mm-hmm. to, to, to rob people of that opportunity by slapping a diet on them or giving them a pill or something. It's just, to me, that's cruel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, c- can we move on to your soft powers? Sure. Do you have them ready? Or are you going to extemporaneously uh, riff? <laughs> I, I was of two minds about it. I mean, look, I think it's a great, I really like the prompt. I really like the whole concept of it. Um, it gave me a lot to think about. Um, I, I'm supposed to tell you three. It can be three, but it doesn't have to. I'm not a, I'm not a stickler for rules. Several. Yeah. Okay. So the first one I came up with actually, I was sort of surprised about this, but I just ran a like three month long program intensive where we met every other week and um, the same group of people. And we, it was called embodied testimony. And it was, you know, we covered a lot of different topics, some of which were incredibly painful um, for various people. And I think one of the things I realized is that we were laughing a lot. Um, And I mean, there was certainly crying and like despondency and all sorts of things, but, and a lot of wrestling with ideas and, you know, what it means, like, what does codependency really mean? And how does it manifest in my life? And is it really codependency? Or is it just, you know, I mean, there's so much like, really wonderful dialogue. But the fact that we were laughing a lot, I think, in part is reflective of the fact that I like, I can find humor or levity in kind of in painful situations, um, or I can be receptive to that or, or model that. Um, and yeah. And so I think that's one of my soft powers is sort of being able in part, because like the, the space that I'm holding, I'm not uncomfortable in the space. It's very hard to make me uncomfortable in a, in a kind of emotionally painful space. And, there's certainly reasons for that that's stemming from my childhood, but, <laughs> but I, I think that because of that, it's like, there is, there is an ability to kind of identify like the possibility of levity, um, especially when I'm in, when we're, I'm facilitating a group, which can be a really powerful experience, um, for all of us, you know, um, 
So I think that's one of them. That's so, can I just ask if that it comes naturally to you or is that something that you've learned the more comfortable yeah. you are? I, I, I honestly think, I think it's really, it's fun. I don't know. I don't know. I think it is something that actually does come naturally to me. Um, like my brother who we grew up together, he has an extremely dry sense of humor. Like there's something about, um, about that, that feels pretty intrinsic, Mm -hmm. but it, it's, it's given like airtime when I'm with a group of people who are kind of receptive or who are all, I think when people are trying really hard, um, and really earnest, we can kind of, um, we can kind of laugh or, or be in the mess of a lot of different emotions together. Um, yeah. So there's a levity. I think it's a release too. It's a relief. It's a release, you know, it's like levity alongside grief, you know, um, really does resonate for me. Um, there's a time and a place for it though, of course. Definitely. Although I do think that humor is kind of the great mediator. It's a great container to have many opposing things be true at once totally this is just making yeah. me there have been a lot of the opportunities <laughs> for those moments this year <laughs> oh <year>. yeah <laughs> for sure definitely okay yeah. give me give me your second one okay um I think I I definitely have this ability to um I think make allow people to feel seen deeply. Um, and part of that is that the way I like see things or understand them is that I kind of see multiplicity and sometimes I can see the unseen, you know, things are just out of reach for someone, but, but I, I think I also have the ability to integrate those those different parts or the multiplicity. I mean, it kind of makes me think about like probably what you're studying right now with acupuncture, you know, right? Like the the idea of holding like the whole body system and thinking about the different parts and, and, you know, someone comes in and they're like, my neck hurts. And you're like, oh, well, that's, you know, little did you know that that's connected to your, right. You know, I, I think that there's a part of me that, you know, in my practice and in, in, you know, the, my podcast project and in a lot of ways, um, it, it's not always, you know, easy, but I think it's powerful for people when they are witnessed by me, um, in that way. Um, because it's not a superficial witnessing. It's sort of like an ability to, to see a lot, Mm -hmm. um, and to hold a lot. How do you not get distracted by all the multiplicity? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's where I, I honestly think that's where like my, um, the, like the integrating part, I don't really know what to call it, but it feels like a part that can kind of like synthesize, Mm. um, different parts. Like, you know, I mean, this comes across a lot when I'm, you know, meeting a new patient for the first time and taking their history and, um, and usually we don't do that in a linear way, um, kind of start where you are now. And I, 
I guess it just feels like something that, um, yeah, it's not, it's not something I learned. It's just, it's kind of the way that I've maybe come to relate to myself in a more empathetic way, like seeing all of the, the different parts and under, and trying to understand through the help of my, you know, very gifted therapist, um, Mm -hmm. and other people see the ways that like the different parts of myself and my experience kind of fit together and make sense, like making sense of myself. Um, and I've experienced a lot of relief and like soothing in that experience. Um, and it's something that I feel really good when I'm able to offer that to another person. Um, it sounds like a filmmaker's skill set, actually. Like a director, you can just moving parts coming together to support a narrative. Right. To support a narrative. Right. Totally. Yeah. I think that is, that is kind of how I experience things. Um, So you got your money's worth in undergrad. I think so. Yeah, I guess. Although the student loan thing, it's like, oh yeah, that's another (laughs) Did I? (laughs) But yes, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. What's your third soft power? Um, I think I think it's, you know, some people don't don't have some people might hear this and say, like, oh yeah, of course you feel that way. You're a therapist. But I I'm like genuinely curious about people's inner world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I just am. And I'm, and I, it doesn't, that curiosity doesn't really go away. Um, and, and I've always been like that, you know, ever, always my whole life. And I mean, part, partly you could say like, that's, you know, you're an empath or you're, you know, like it's, and yeah, I think that that's partly true, but I think that curiosity, um, was, maybe something I learned out of necessity, like needing to kind of, um, understand everything that was happening around me. Cause it was sort of overwhelming and scary. And, you know, we could go on and on about why, but the enduring kind of quality is that, um, is, is a sort of a really strong curiosity about, um, like what else is there, you know, like what else is there left to, um, know or understand about someone's inner world or inner experience. And, um, I think that comes across when you're working with me, um, or when I'm, yeah, when you know me, um, yeah. I love that. And really, I think all the, how I define most soft powers are that they kind of come from struggle. Sure. Like you have to kind of treat them softly and then they Mm. become your, your soft power. And then you're like, yeah, that's never going away. I'm always going to have that in me. But we don't always get, I mean, I think what's lovely about your project is that we don't always get a chance to kind of identify and um, 
like identify those those qualities or see them necessarily as powerful right yeah um, yeah it's easy to cast them aside and say they're a liability or yeah something like a survival mechanism or whatever mm-hmm. you know and, um yeah mm-hmm. yeah well thank you so much I want to get you out of here when you uh oh my gosh I'm doing so well on time I'm yeah. a chronically late person you're like, you're running a, it's like you're running a therapy session, just like wow. right on time. <laughs> um, the way we say goodbye in the bedside manner universe is we put you to bed. But before we do that, um, did you want to leave a recommendation for the nightstand? Oh, yes, I did. Oh my gosh, I have so many, but Please, I will get them thick. Okay. All right. So I have a, I, as I said earlier, I'm like, I really love reading and, mm-hmm. um, I will give you quite maybe a couple. Um, so one of a really beautiful book I'm reading actually literally is on my nightstand is A History of My Brief Body by Billy Ray Belcourt. It's a memoir. Um, it's a poetic memoir. It's beautiful. Definitely worth reading. Um, I just got my copy of Black Futures, which is edited by Jenna Wortham and K- Kimberly Drew. Um, it is like talk about embodied narratives and mm-hmm. archiving, um, archiving like the inner inner world, inner psychic world of black life and creativity and all. It's a beautiful book, like physically and mm-hmm. um, in spirit. So that's something I'm making, I'm working my way through right now. Um, I love Marley Grace's new book. It's called Getting to Center. Um, it's really affirming and practical. Um, and it's definitely worth reading. Um, one of my favorite parts is like creating an avoidance list. And I've really been benefiting from that, like identifying what I chronically avoid Mm -hmm. doing, um, and taking a look at that. Um, I'm going to name two more. One is, um, Dean Spade's most recent book, which is, uh, I just cracked open and it's called mutual aid build building solidarity during this crisis and the next, um, oh boy. <laughs> uh, really, uh, interesting writer and, um, attorney and activist. And, uh, it's a, it's an important book. And the last one, um, is a, is kind of goes back to our like um, talk about film and film theory um, in a way, but uh, it's called Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Riotous Black Girls, Troublesome Women and Queer Radicals um, by Sidia Hartman. And the way that Sidia Hartman writes is um, really excavating the untold um, or unseen narratives of history. Um, And I love that idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, and I admire that work a lot. Um, So that's that, those are my recommendations. That's such a great list. And Jenna Wortham and Marley Grace have both been on your podcast, right? They have. So people can check that out. We'll obviously link to everything. I just kicked my loud desk. Um, are there any other events or or things that you wanted to announce or direct people to if they want to know, get more of, of Asher? 
I think just follow me on Instagram at living in the square body. I have workshops pretty regularly and um, you can listen to the podcast. Um, I'd be, I'd love to have you listen. Tune in. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. This is so great. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. I told you we had a star in our midst and I did not lie. If you want more Asher, and I know you do, please subscribe to Living in this Queer Body. It's such a good podcast. And of course, contact info, Nightstand Rex, uh, all the links you could ever want and dream of are in the show notes as well as on bedsidemanneruniverse.com. Um, I'll see you in two weeks for the next episode and uh, I hate to ask, it's so awkward, but if you feel like leaving a review on Apple podcasts, I would love that so much, but I only accept five stars. So just keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, I think that, that that's about it. Oh, actually I will talk more about this later. Uh, but I want to start incorporating listener questions into some of the show. So if you have questions, uh, f- I mean, I, I guess for me, but m- more for an esteemed guest, uh, send them to me and I will, I will find a way to work them in, uh, more on that later, but I just wanted to mention it now. Okay. I'll let you go. It was lovely to see you. I'll see you in two weeks. And as always... Let me know if you need anything. Love you. Bye.